As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions Looking at devoiding myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you going, better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up you're listening to the Tom Thickner Show on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. And for loyal listeners of this show, maybe even if you're tuning in for, tuning in for the first time, that's fine, too, because uh, our, our, uh, spance, our expanse, our connection, our reach to, the, to our various audiences, not only here in New Haven, not only nationally, but internationally, uh, it's something that we're really blessed to be. That, that voice you heard was... Harry, Harry, our station manager. And Harry, I just want to give you a shout out of happy Thanksgiving, or if, as we know, this is Native American uh, Heritage Month. We're kind of concluding November as Native American Heritage Month. And also on Thursday, uh, some folks, including myself, consider Thursday to be a national day of mourning. But regardless of whether we, how you view the political and economic uh, um, uh, labels of the day, certainly Thursday could be a day of Thanksgiving for all of us. There's so much for us to give thanks to. So a shout out and, and wishing everybody a, a, a thankful day and a blessed day on this coming Thursday. Uh, today, uh, the Tom Ficklin Radio Show is November 21st, 2022. And I mentioned that because we're, we're, we're going to give thanks for this show. We're going to give thanks for the fact that uh, we're alive and well and blessed and able to share information and really vital and quite frankly, life-saving information, if not, if not life-saving, life-sustaining information. Dr. Isaac Kim is with us. Dr. Kim is a urologic uh, oncologist and surgeon who specializes in the treatment, management, and prevention of prostate cancer. I have a number of friends, including myself, that are prostate thrivers. And so we, we give thanks today for being able to kind of uh, be alive and uh, to have received uh, equitable medical treatment. But some folks have not received equi equitable medical treatment. And so today's title is Equitable Outcomes in the treatment of prostate cancer. Dr. Kim uh, has interest in why, quite frankly, treatment outcomes differ from one individual to the next. I mean, that's a, that's a, a remarkable statement for a physician to make that he publicly acknowledges that the body kind of responds differently in spite of uh, consistent medical methodologies. This show will explore the social determinants of health. You might've heard that term time and time again, but it's something that needs to be repeated. And I like to throw in even economic determinants of health. That may, that may impact mortality rates, i.e. death rates, amongst various groups, including Black men. Dr. Kim, welcome. Tom, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. It's really, truly, truly a privilege of mine. And we're joined by Reverend Dr. Leroy O. Perry, Jr. Uh, and Dr. Perry is the pastor of St. Stephen's AME Zion Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Reverend Perry, good morning to you. Good morning to everyone. All right, all right, uh, Doctor Doctor Perry. Let's let me just mention that Reverend Alvin Clayton was going to join us, but he's uh, on a mission. And again, I'm really in such admiration of members of the clergy, well, all, all service deliverers and people that want to that that not, not not only want to but do commit themselves to a, to a, to sustaining life. And so, Doctor Doctor Clayton is on a mission and can join us today. Doctor Kim, you've been you have been. Uh, You've been at Yale for, I guess this is, you're completing your first year as, as the uh, urology chair in the School of Medicine. So welcome. And I, I, I'm not sure if you've been baptized or by misfit or, or sprinkled, <laughs> but nonetheless, welcome. 
and, uh, and also your chief of the urology at Yale New Haven Hospital. Tell us, if, as we kind of begin, we have about 55 minutes, tell us a little bit you know, about your, to our listeners and our viewers, um, what you do in this role. It's, it's, it's certainly exciting and, and life-sustaining. Right, again, Tom, again, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity and also to the listeners. Um, so again, um, as you said, uh, I've been here at Yale and to be the, or assume the position of the chair of the urology about one year ago. So this is about uh, September of last year that I moved from New Jersey, from Rutgers University to Yale. And uh, what got me really excited, I think, is the opportunity to really build a program or lead a program um, in urology that can address a lot of the issues that we're facing uh, with our patients. Uh, you know, our department has basically three missions, uh, which is on the clinical side, uh, which is to deliver the, the best care that we can to all of our patients in an equitable um, and yet also you know, state-of-the-art science. Um, and then we have the educational mission uh, to attract all the uh, students, trainees, um, and then we have the research missions also. So you know, on all three fronts, we strive to be excellent. And as a chair of the department, my goal is to basically act as a, a conductor in a way, uh, mm. coordinate all the activities of the faculty members, the trainees, the staff, so that we're able to meet all those three missions. Uh, so it's truly an exciting and a great uh, opportunity uh, and a privilege of mine. And the last year has just been an exciting time for me. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just been a great, uh, great time that I had already for one year. Well, welcome, and, and we're really so glad to see you. You know, I wanted to, just as you're talking, uh, Dr. Kim, I want to ask, ask you, I've heard this term that you you mentioned publicly that you want the, the urology department to be a, a destination urology program. But before I do that, and before your vision, I guess, wonder, Reverend Perry, uh, I've often introduced you as the uh, as part of the cultural ambassadors, but I, I want people to kind of hear that when we mention culture, we're not just talking about arts and music, really our, our lifestyle and the total complexity of what so you guys that have chosen the term the cultural ambassador maybe elaborate on why why in my mind uh, that is so important because it's such a comprehensive term but we don't want to think people to think that you're just dancing and, and, and singing all the time well Tom I think that's a great question um and one I should probably know like the back of my hand but every time I think about it, uh, new things come to mind. The, when we started with the program of the ambassador program, one of the things that, that I suggest that we do is not start at the general, but start at the particular. I can't talk about, I can't go very broad and wide unless I can start at a particular point. Mm. And so by, being culturally a part of a particular community, it made it very easy to access that information and data and to work with a particular population and move from that population to a more general population. Mm. And I think that that's what the cultural ambassadors, uh, one of their primary goals is to somehow start where we are and, and develop better. And uh, if we start where we are, then we have to look at, at the disproportionate number of African-American men who are disproportionately affected. Mm. Why is this? How do, we, how, do we, how do we change that outcome? And so we've, we've, we've been dealing with this for the last like eight years. Uh, we, we've, had, we've had campaigns where we reached out to the community. One campaign was from the barbershop. The next campaign was um, 
that we said that, you know, it wasn't enough to reach out to the men, but that we needed to reach out to the women, mm-hmm. moms, wives, daughters, aunties, sisters. And so um, we, we, we had some impact. But again, you know, it's really, it's, it's a deep subject. And let me just mm. say this parenthetically. Mm-hmm. I, Dr. Kim and I had lunch one day and we were talking about genetics and, and prostate cancer. And he said something that was so profound that it stuck with me. Because mm. I, I, was, I was thinking, oh, wait, if we can find the genetic gene and then we can, we can um, determine how many people. And then he said to me, he said, even if that were true, Reverend, he said, the problem is, how do we deal with it once we find it? Mm. How do we deal with it so that we can have better outcomes? And that was just, just, just brilliant. Um, Dr. Kim, we had a bishop on, on the show who had prostate cancer about 20 years ago. And in our interview with him, he told us that when he discovered that he had the cancer, he went to his doctor and his doctor advised him not only to do the surgical, but to do the radiation. And I kept thinking, that's the first I've ever heard of a doctor. And I'm thinking, did he have special insurance? Was he, did he have some wealth or some knowledge that the rest of the doctors and the rest of us in our particular genre did not have access to? And so, you know, having you back on the show again, it's going to be really interesting to find out how this works because it's a mystery to me. So, so Dr. Kim, that's a good lead-in. I mean, a, a perfect lead-in, you know, platform for you to, to respond as well as incorporating the, the, the destination neurology program and your vision. Sure. Tom, I think, you know, um, you know, actually this is a, a you know huge debate amongst, not a huge debate, but a question that was often posed to me by a faculty member when I first came on, because as a new chair, um, I had to you know, chart a course and say, you know, what kind of uh, department or what kind of program do we aspire to be collectively, a team we uh, aspire to be. To that end, again, the, the word um, that, um, that I stress was just destination center. And I think simply put, it's basically this concept, right? If you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, like the bishop that um, Reverend Perry just said, then which place do you come, comes to your mind, right? I mean, simply that's what it means. Which place would you go to get your cancer or your urologic problems taken care of as a patient? So I think that's a simple concept in some ways. Nevertheless, you know, when you really look at the specifics of it, how do you get there, right? I mean, what is, does that really mean? And I think as I look at our department and within this Yale University, there's a lot of great work that is going on. Uh, a lot of great research. I think there's a lot of things that can really improve the quality of life, um, the type of medical care that we can deliver to our patients. I think what has been missing, or I think what we have not been very good at, has been actually translating those findings into the to the bedside, to the clinic, so mm-hmm. that we can actually improve the uh, the lives of the patients. And so I think that's where we are we strive to do now. Is yes, we want to be a destination center, and the strategy then is to really harness the internal strength of the Yale University all the great science that is happening, as well as, again, some strategic recruitments and bringing people from the outside experts um, and could you build out that, that expertise so that when patients are diagnosed and they're um, facing this, the most difficult time of their lives in some ways, when they get diagnosed with various urologic diseases, including cancer, then mm. they'll look to Yale and say, yes, that's the type of place that I would like to go and get my disease taken care of. You know, and... In- in previous shows, I, sometimes I'll kind of warm up to the tough 
to the tough questions or, or the question that doesn't have a, an immediate answer, but just uh, informing us about the direction of what we're doing to try to find that answer or find that solution. But let me, let me jump into the, I think the elephant in the room and Dr. Perry's alluded to it um, in terms of survival rates and the disparate uh, impact on black men in this particular case that tend to be diagnosed and die from, from prostate cancer at higher rates. Um, Dr. Kim, you're on, you're on the hot seat a little bit. What do, what do you think you, accounts for these differences in outcomes in race? Is it, is it race and space? Is it social determinants? What's your, what's your working theory at the moment? Right. So I will, I think, you know, the way um, I would like to share with you my perspectives, share with you my life story, my professional story. I think that would, I think, give you some sort of a, a uh, or in some ways, this confusing picture about, you know, the landscape of prostate cancer, especially with African-American men. Um, so I'll tell you, you know, early on in my career, that was probably about 12, 13 years ago, um, that I met an African-American gentleman. He was 52 years old at the time, came into my clinic. He had a low-grade prostate cancer. So what I mean by that is when you have low-grade prostate cancer, the except the paradigm is to do a conservative op conservative observation. So do a regular PSA checks, regular schedule PSA checks, which is a blood test that we do, and a physical exam, and don't do any sort of aggressive intervention. Well, fast forward the story, um, the patient did not do very well. Uh, in about two, three years, his cancer progressed rapidly. Um, and I actually uh, did the operation on him, um, but he didn't do so well after the operation. He progressed. Um, so that patient actually really, as I was taking care of that patient, I always wondered at the time that, you know, should I have done something different for this patient? Yes, the national guideline says that in patients with low-grade prostate cancer that you should observe, that you should not to be aggressive in some intervention. But this one patient certainly did not do so well. In the back of my mind, you know, I watched him for about two years. So did I lose that window of opportunity where I could have, could have theoretically cured this man by sitting on this disease or not? So that's how I got really interested or I got I became really focused on this issue of prostate cancer in the uh, amongst the African-American men. So as I move forward with this, so we actually launched a couple of uh, group, uh, large series study within our institution, as well as I pulled in my colleagues uh, from all the other institutions or many, many institutions outside New Jersey. And we put a couple of papers out, but I tell you, as so at the time, again, I think if you really go, go to this issue of what the uh, debate is, it's really how much is genetics important versus how much is other issues like barrier to cares, socioeconomic issues, right? So I tell you early on in my career, I was convinced that genetics had, had a lot of, a lot of huge, huge you know, influence, impact on this. But I think, you know, as you go, you know, forward um, in, in, uh, as I looked into this topic and I did more studies uh, and looking at more in a population-based data or analysis, the latest one being a, a re review of the SEER, which is a, a a cancer data, the conference cancer database that is maintained by the National Cancer Institute, that actually I came to the convinced, I became to be more and more convinced that it's not the genetics that's, I think, predominant role. I think the, the I think the, uh, at this point in my career now is I'm, I'm convinced that if you can improve access for our African-American men, if we give them the equal care, I think they'll do just as well. 
I think the problem again is, is, is that, you know, that socioeconomic barrier is tremendous to navigate. So in some ways, and I started with, from the genetic side, right? And then I came back to the, I think, looking at the outcomes, the, the disparity in outcomes, that the more and more data that as I took a look at it, I think the socioeconomics issues, the educational community, I think it began to emerge as a more of the predominant factor. And that's what most of the recent literature says. But I do want to put one thing out, though. Yeah, please. Incidence of prostate cancer in African men is higher than the Caucasian, the uh, general population. That's about 1.7 times higher than the general population. So that does tell me, though, that genetics probably does have a role. So I'm not completely discounting that. So at the end, like any sort of a complex or controversial issues, the truth is somewhere going to be in the middle. So there is going to be that genetic component as well as the socioeconomics. That said, I believe that if you are able to take care of the disparity in socioeconomic support, that you'll be able to address most of these disparities and outcomes because when you control for stage per stage, the severity of the disease, then the outcomes are excellent. Outcomes are both equal. So what that means is that if a stage one African-American men is treated with uh, treated for prostate cancer, and you compare the outcomes to Caucasian counterpart with stage one prostate cancer, their outcomes are equivalent. So then what you ultimately have to do then is, is if you want to level this and make the outcomes of work, make sure that the outcome of the prostate cancer is, is similar between those or uh, address those disparities, then you have to then catch those diseases earlier in time mm. so that you can address those diseases because when that is controlled for, at the end, the outcomes are going to be equivalent. Mm -hmm. Reverend Perry, I can see your synapses. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I agree with my friend. <laughs> uh, because it, it, it appears that that they that the in, in his equation, there's the, the missing link here is that they are not treated equally. And so the outcomes are always going to be disproportionate. I don't know how you can. I mean, I, I I can I can hear you saying yes. If we if if all things being equal and we had they had equal care, that I agree with you. But the problem is that there is that this is the problem. There there is no equal care here, and even and it's regional in some places. I was looking at uh, this project called Zero Prostate, and they were saying, and if you're in New York, New England, or if you're in the Midwest, or if you're in the South, outcomes were different, also based on region regions that you were. Now, I don't know if that's because of the physicians in those regions. I don't know if it's because of access to care in those regions. How do we how do we thread this needle to get to the to get to the position where we can we can bring about that kind of equality yeah. of care. Um, can I weigh in or no? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the ball's been passed to you. The, the right, right. So, 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 I mean, so, so Reverend Perry and I are saying the same thing here. So, but the precisely the reason for me getting out in shows like this, Tom, is exactly that reason. You know, how do we start breaking down these barriers, mm -hmm. disparities in terms of care? And really, I've been putting a lot of thought into this for about last, you know, many couple of years now, because I guess I get into you know, that middle part to latter part of my career, right? I'm trying to look for ways where I can share my uh, my experience with the general community now. So I see that as almost like almost like a two pronged approach. 
One is what Dr. Uh, Reverend Perry does, and, and Tom, you do through the shows. It's grassroots effort. It's reaching out to the community, educating them about this issue. Just as the more the, the community, African recommend know about this, the more women, the families know about this, I think the better it is gonna be. General education of the community. But second, was something I have not had a lot of traction for, and this is really, I look to the community for support, is I really think there has to be almost an intentional and deliberate attempt at the state level, as well as federal level in terms of addressing this issue. Hmm. Because, you know, when you take a look at, we pull, you know, roll out these policies about how prostate cancer should be treated. We just get a blanket general consensus statement that says that, you know what? Most of the men that I run into these days, the first thing out of their mouth when they talk about, or first thing they would say you know, when they speak to me about prostate cancer, oh yeah, prostate cancer is generally indolent. It doesn't hurt you. Most patients are going to do fine from the disease. That's the general message that the general um, uh, the citizens of our country get. But So I think we have to be a little different here, I think, in approaching the African-American community here, because it is very different. So I believe at this, you know, when I talk about this issue of a more of a state level and national level intervention, is I think in terms of shaping our Medicare, some sort of national health insurance mm. platforms, I think there's got to be some sort of way to incentivize doctors to say, okay, you know what, maybe the African American community need to be treated or the screened differently, much more aggressively. Right. So I think we have to be separate this two out as you're seeing these differences in terms of the outcomes. And so, again, um, you know, that is something that I've been trying to get at with our local leaders um, and the uh, the state leaders and the national leaders. But certainly um, you know, it's going to take a lot of effort, I think, on everyone's part to start moving the needle in that sense. And really, I think that is where I think it's really going to make a difference is that if you start linking national policies, right, to the local education efforts, I think when truly you're going to start seeing movement and needle in terms of the outcome for the uh, African-American community uh, with prostate cancer. You know, mm -hmm. Dr. Kim, it seems that whenever it affects African-Americans, this, this is a major problem. I mean, we, we were talking to uh, um, a, one of our sickle cell doctors in New Haven, and they were saying, look at the money that they spend out for other research. And when it comes to sickle cell, the, 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 the streams just dry up. Yeah. Uh, so here's the, here's the thing that, that interests me with you is that you, 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 you're saying that, so if we, if we identify the people, how do we, again, here's my issue. If we identify them, are they gonna get, are they gonna get the kind of doctor or the kind of care that's gonna bring about positive, I mean, real positive outcomes that are going to be sustainable for them you know it's like you said to me once before not all doctors are equal <laughs> not all clinics are equal how do we get how do we get the folk who need it the most at least to the care to the best care or comparable care equitable care how do we do that so <laughs> this is where I, think I may become a little more controversial here. Yeah. I'm going to try to, you know, toe the line here. The, the Tom Ficklin show is known for its controversy, <laughs> Dr. Kim. In fact, yeah, we, so, we appreciate your being loose and free. Sure. Um, so, so again, I have to, first of all, say this is my personal opinion, right? This is not a Yale School <laughs> of Medicine opinion, all right? Um, that said, 
what Reverend Perry is referring to is a, a paper that we published a couple of years ago, where we took a look at the outcomes of patients who had radical prostatectomy, which is surgery for prostate cancer. We took data from many institutions uh, in the United States, um, elite institutions. These are centers where patients would go and get their, um, you know, so these are sort of called, if you can say, destination centers when they think about, you know, taking care of the disease. What we found was a surprisingly that the, the differences in terms of the outcomes for African-American patients across all these institutions vary dramatically. Now, we don't know exactly the reason why, right? But if you're, I think this is, goes back to Reverend Perry's point again, you know, if you were African-American men who have, were taken care of, let's say, uh, in middle of, um, you know, country, you know, I, you know, I'm just making this up right now, you know, let's say uh, Iowa, let's say, versus um, in New Haven versus Florida, it appears that there appears to be significant difference in terms of outcomes. Now, I don't know the exact reason why. Nevertheless, you know, what this suggests is, is that the, these different regions in terms, and, and I think there were some um, outcomes that were tracking, which reflects the quality of the surgeries being done. And that was different across these institutions. So, now, when um, you know someone or a patient is in the time, you know, if you're diagnosed with prostate, you're not just go to anybody, right? You're gonna take do your homework. You're gonna take a look at which doctor has done what and what the outcome is. I think generally, I think that's what it's pointing out is is that you know there's so much variability in terms of the outcomes and how patients, depending on who treats him, where he you know, he gets treated, that I think you have to be careful. Or you have to much more deliberate in terms of identifying the facility or the doctor that you're going to get your prostate cancer treated. I think to that and how do we get there? Again, this is something because it's really, because the thing is, is that our national, there is no national database that tells you the outcomes of the doctors. And it goes to, you know, when I was, you know, I told you, you know, I went to a, a business school, you know, uh, part of, uh, you know, during my uh, career, some part of my career, because I wanted to be a better manager of our department, being a leader. And part of that, you know, one of the things one of the professors said is, is that healthcare is one of those things where patients consume, and yet they have no idea what they're consuming. Mm -hmm. I can say that, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I think, again, this is, I think, a, a two-pronged approach that I would like to approach here. I think it's going to have to some sort of a, 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 a combination here. Again, I think as we discuss and have more of such discourse like ours right now, I think there's going to be more solutions. One of them is, I think, what uh, Reverend Perry said, I would love to get out there, continue to educate the community, let them know. And I want to be able to say these are the 10 questions or five questions that as a prostate cancer patient, you need to ask your doctor when you get to the office. Right. I will tell you most of the time when I see patients come in, predominant majority of them don't ask questions. They're not very, they're, they're in, which is good, right? I mean, they trust, you know, what I have to say. Nevertheless, I think it's on the patient's part. I think, you know, much of would, would help or, or the advantage of the patients to ask the questions about what the doctor has done or surgeon has done in terms of treating prostate cancer. I think the second thing is I'm looking for some sort of more of a community-based um, a, a, a collective effort where you can go and say, okay, you know what, this is where we can come to for the common sources of information. What I'm saying is, is I say this because, you know, again, being sensitive to history, what has happened, I think there has to be some sort of a, a reliable source that the African-American community can take a look at, right, to look to and say, this is where I can go to get a good information 
about my care. So, and again, you know, I, I think uh, uh, previously, I think in Reverend Perry in our discussion was I was referring to a, a, a community effort that we started or that I worked with in New Jersey was Jazz for Prostate Cancer. And in there, we had a similar discussions. This is it, can all these organizations get together and agree to build some sort of website, right? In, in there, you'll put the, all the numbers out. You know, it's, that it's not that the, you know, we can get the national data per se, but I bet you'll be able to collect some sort of a pretty good mm -hmm. source of information and put it into a website where it would be a trusted website or trusted source of information the committee can look to and say, okay, you know what? I'm in St. Louis, let's say, I've got prostate cancer. Who's the doctor that I should go and take a look at in this mm -hmm. area, right? Mm -hmm. So they need to be able to put some sort of databases like that together. So I think there's had to be some sort of much more concerted and coordinated effort and the community leaders to put some sort of a site like that together. I would love to see that happen. And again, this is going to have to come, come with some sort of a consensus and support at some level from the, the, the public funding, federal fundings also. Dr. Kim, let's, let's circle back if you could, because you referenced the questions that a person should ask. Uh, share with us some, it doesn't have to be 10, but share with us if you would, a few, <laughs> few, few questions that folks should, uh, should be aware of and pose to their physician. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, again, the, the most um, common or the, I think the first question is, is that, you know, what is the experience of the surgeon with respect to treating that particular disease? Mm. So prostate cancer, you know, if you're going for someone who's going to you know, possibly entertain radical prostatectomy, you should ask the surgeon, how many have you done? I mean, that should be a, a very, you know, one of the very first questions coming to the mind. Mm. Sometimes, you know, you know the, I think the patients sometimes feel awkward in asking those questions, but I tell you more and more patients are asking those questions. And I think again, just arming, uh, arming and letting our patients know, the community know that, okay, you know, these are the questions that you should be asking. So the first question again is the, the volume, surgical volume, let's say. And then second thing is, you know, more about the outcomes. How long have you followed these patients? What are your particular outcomes? All right. I think the similar question should also be asked of radiation oncologists and medical oncologists. Mm. So I'll tell you one thing here, right? You know, oftentimes you know, our patients put a blind faith because the particular doctor trained from top 10 institutions. And I'll tell you that, you know, just because that that um, you know, that surgeon trained from the best of the universities doesn't necessarily make that doctor the best surgeon because it's all individual level, right? So at the end, what's most important is that you need to dig into what is the personal experience of the doctor that you're seeing at that point in time. And if the doctor doesn't tell you, he's not able to tell you what his or her personal experience is, then you have to, again, you know, think through that issue, right? I mean, is that, is that right? I mean, I'm not going to say that just because they can't tell you that that's, you know, doctor that you need to walk out from, right? Nevertheless, right? You, I think you need to, again, be very, um, um, yeah, you have to persistent in trying to get the, the inf accurate, as much accurate information as you can out of that visit uh, before you make a decision. And Dr. Perry, if I can ask, I wanted to ask Dr. Kim, about it related to this, in addition to the questions, uh, Dr. Kemet, there's so much evolving nature about the surgical technology, the types of treatment, radiation, Da Vinci, whatever the case might be. As I say, I, I kind of had the external radiation almost 20 years ago. I'm just curious, I guess, to share with some of our readers, because I guess as I'm talking to you now, there's five friends that I know that have recently gone uh, 
under some sort of prostate cancer remediation, as well as a few friends that are trying to decide what, but literally what to do. Uh, so in terms of choosing the best treatment options for an individual and in, in the, the evolution of technology, could you share a little bit about that? Right. So um, again, it really depends on the what the what disease the individual has, the patient has, right? I mean, so you have to pick the right uh, treatment or you know right method for the for the patient. Uh, so we generally change or categorize our patients into three different categories. One is low risk group, intermediate risk group, second, and the third is high risk group. Um, in the low low risk group, we generally recommend observation. Now there's a significant controversy, not significant controversy, some debate about some risk factors, such as being an African American, uh, having a first degree relative. Does it make a difference or not? But right now, the general consensus they should not. Low risk disease, low risk disease. It will probably it's reasonable to observe these patients. For the second, the intermediate risk group um, and the high risk group, the general interventions are either surgery or radiation. Now, the surgery and radiation, when you're um, uh, faced with the discussions, there's, there is really no randomized study, which is the, the equivalent of the gold standard. That's the way you know whether one treatment is better than the other. So in terms of weighing surgery versus radiation, really there is no good study out there that tells you which one is the way to go. So at the end, I would say that you just have to weigh what the doctor has to say in terms of his or her experience with those particular approaches and to decide what you think is in your best interest. And each of, and both of them, the radiation and surgery have both their benefits and the risks that's inherent to those particular treatments. So you have to, as a patient, have to decide what you prioritize, what are most important things. So for instance, most of us would agree that the impact on sexual function with surgery is going to be more profound than radiation. So that I don't think most, I don't think there's a lot of doubt debate about. So then with that, and if their sexual function is of a primary concern, then that has to play a role as you decide whether surgery or radiation is a better option for you. Um, so again, these are some of the issues that as you as you look at it um, from radiation surgery, um, you know, those are the, the questions um, that you should ponder. When you go up to the high risk or very high risk category, that's where the multidisciplinary approach start, multi-pronged uh, approach comes in. These are where you can combine surgery or radiations with chemotherapy, immunotherapy, et cetera. So uh, there are in clinical trials right now. So to that group, it is more likely than not that a combination of approach is going to be necessary to optimize the outcome for the patients. Um, and then I think, you know, one thing that has, uh, you know, not quite, uh, I would say mainstream right now, but I think it is uh, kind of uh, gaining traction is something called a focal therapy. So this is somewhere in between uh, observing and having a radical intervention, which is a radiation or surgery. So this is for patients with a relative low volume disease where the cancer can be localized to, to a specific area within the prostate. Then for these patients, sometimes if you give them a, a some sort of, a, of localized radio radiation or, or laser sometimes or in on or high frequency ultrasound or some of these different energy modalities that can just deliver to the particular area of the, of the prostate. The upside is certainly the quality of life is gonna be a lot better uh, mm -hmm. with these approaches. Um, mm -hmm. The question remains, though, is, is the cancer control going to be adequate or not? Again, that's I think that is going to have to mature first, I think, before we be able to tell on that front. Hmm. Reverend Perry, I can see you. Oh, yeah. It's, I, it's, I can see you're ready. 
Yeah, see, Dr. Kim, I mean, he gets so much information. He doesn't, <laughs> he, does. <laughs> he doesn't realize how much information he's thrown out at us at one time. And so we don't know, have enough time on the show to deal with all of them. Uh, first of all, before I go to where he just left off, yes, sir. where he started with the questions and with a developing maybe a, uh, a website where we could all benefit from this kind of information. Uh, I, I believe that we can do that here at Yale. Mm -hmm. I, I think we can talk to the right people and get that done and start here. And mm -hmm. it could be a model across the nation mm -hmm. I think and, and, and because people watch your show Tom and we have a your your videos go right onto the web to the Yale website so and epic charts and all that we're doing that now so we are, we, we should we should use this as an opportunity to um, develop that kind of strategy mm -hmm. going forward I mean it's so important that's the first thing. The second thing is that I, th I found interesting is the, the whole issue of treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and now I understand maybe why Reverend uh, Bishop Monroe had both. Maybe his, maybe his case was at the level of high intensity. And so they use both techniques. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm told that if you're 80 years old, <laughs> You know, you you may you may opt for just the radiation because of the, the age that you are. But again, the question I think people have, Dr. Kim and Tom, is that you know what, we just don't we leave it in the hands of our physicians. And maybe if we had this website that would explain these uh possibilities and possible treatments. Um, because I, I remember one guy said to me, um, my cancer, my cancer's gone forever. I said, really? He said, yeah, because I had surgery. I said, oh, okay. And then I'm thinking about the people who got radiation. They can't really say that, but there's some who've lived 20 years and 30 years with the radiation treatment. So it's important to educate. Um, and, 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 and thirdly, Dr. Kim, one of the things that you said earlier about your uh, destination, how do we, how do we, here's the problem. You've got the average Joe who may not have health insurance at all. How do we get this person? Can we get them into your clinic or a clinic in New Haven? How do we get them into um, the right treatment? Yeah. So the, um, you know, um, you know, what Reverend Paris, if I can just start with you, the last comments, last question about, you know, this, how do we get the state of the art care? I think the, really the question is, you know, allowing state of art care to be accessible to those who otherwise would not have access to. Um, I think this is where we have to consider, you know, or, or how do we take care of the, or take advantage of the technology. So some of the studies that I've seen now, and I think which is probably something we should consider is, you know, COVID has forced a lot of us to use telemedicine on a broader scale, right? So that means then if someone's in the middle of the, uh, you know, uh, rural area, two, three hours away from here. Now, what that telemedicine platform is gonna allow, right, is that then we're gonna be able to see that or see that patient. So he'll have here, he will have access, uh, the prostate cancer patient would have access to our providers, the expert providers because of this um, communication or this information network that we have. The 
question though is that sometimes right then if you have that you know how do we streamline and coordinate that i think that is again i think going to be much broader scale and almost like again i think reaches to the level of a statewide can you coordinate can you put different people in place you know so-called the nurse navigators in place that can help you can you have certain hot spots this specialized clinics that could be equipped with this different communication um, channel so that you can do a telemedicine to that uh, particular site that's two, three hours away from, let's say, New Haven and still be able to give you the guide and give you that consultation. Right? And then I think once a diagnosis is made or once that decision, treatment decision is made, and if that patient decides to have the care done, let's say New Haven, then I think we have to then be much more intentional in terms of how we're going to handle those. Because I think we're going to have to, you know, I mean, Reverend Perry and Tom, this is really my, you know, assessment of this and what's going on, right? Is it if we're really honest about what we're saying, and we really want to address this issue with disparity in care, that we're that we're going to have to put more money in. Mm. There's no way around it. We're not going to be able to get addressed this right by cutting our budget, buying the things that we say, you know, make it efficient. By definition, when you're trying to do this, that is an inefficient process in some ways. Now, you want to make the process as efficient as possible, but at the end, we're going to have to put more resources into this for us to address this. And I think that is really the honest conversation we're going to have, to have is that at what cost are we going to be allow, are we going to be committing to get this done? And I think to that end, that's what's going to require is we're going to have to have these different networks, community clinics outside that's going to allow the the traditionally uh, under, you know, the community that doesn't have ready access to the medicine to have access to that. And then allow, we have to develop some sort of a, a transportation issues, you know, some of the social support issues, you know, how are we going to do all that, right? Well, so I think, again, I think it's going to take, I think, much more intentional, deliberate effort. Um, but again... Reverend Perry, I've been thinking about this for a long, long time. But at the end, you know, say, hey, if you have somebody who can give you a billion dollars in the donors, I'll come up and do that, right? I think that's ultimately the, I think, the question, right? But I think, well, I think, again, I think we have to be honest with ourselves in that sense. It's going to cost a lot of resources to build this in. But I think as a country, you know, we're the richest nation in the world. Then we got to be able to find those resources to get taken care of that. In some ways, this boggles my mind that we're still having this conversation when we're saying, you know, that so much, we're blessed with so many things in our country. And gentlemen, we have about 15 minutes. So again, as and Dr. Kim, you're on fire. So I really appreciate it. it, <laughs> it is, is he not? And that, and we need and we need that fire. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about research and clinical trials that you might be involved with, Dr. Kim. And and again, I guess we don't want to neglect uh, or ignore your reference to. The, the state and political and national economic political system and, and how that impacts things. Reverend Perry, that's a show we probably have to do because Dr. Crystal has referenced uh, the politics of, of, of healthcare as well on the previous show and you've, re you've referenced during the Sickle Shell show. So maybe an upcoming show on the, the economics and the politics of, of medical care might be appropriate. But, but Dr. Kim, current research, clinical trials, share with us a little bit, translational research, Tell, sure. share a little bit with, with us if you would. So uh, I'm going to go back to your questions about what kind of research I do, but I first want to do one thing. Sure. If you look at prostate cancer and all these guidelines we push out there, right? These are all based upon clinical studies, new trials, new concepts, right? In those trials, 
Do you know what the percentage of African-American patient is in those studies which have driven the guidelines in which prostate cancer disproportionately impacts the African-American community? Most of the studies, let's say less than 5% of the study subjects are from African-American patients. Hmm. Probably lion's share of the studies, they don't even tell you. They don't even tell you what the racial hmm. makeup is. So I think that's the reality we're working in right now is to say we are recommending treatment for the African-American community based on studies that doesn't involve them for the most of the, for the large, you know, for the, mm. you know, the, the, the large part of those studies. I think that's a reality that we have to look into this, right? As we talk about clinical trials, you know, I've been advocating for a while, again, I, again, uh, that's what I'm advocating here right now, is, is that as we move forward, right? You know, even in clinical trials landscape right now, we're saying that, okay, you know, we want to include more African-Americans or minorities or patients who are directly impacted by the disease into the clinical trial. But that's where we end. I think we need to have metrics. For instance, again, I'm going out on the limb here. This is my personal opinion. Again, I have to stress that <laughs> medicine, right? So I think for, Af for prostate cancer clinical trials, every time the National Cancer Institute funds it, right? I think they have to mandate this saying that either 15 to 20% has to be African-Americans mm. mm. or else mm. that trial is not going to get funded. Mm. I think we have to put our foot down. Simply saying, putting in a line and sentence saying that, you know, we're going to improve, involve more African-American representation in this clinical trial. It's not going to cut it because that has not worked to, to date. Mm. Okay, so enough about, you know, how passionate I feel about this. Okay, On the contrary, <laughs> keep the fire burning. No, no, that's, I mean, that's because I think at the end, the burden has to fall on the investigators. They have to figure this out. We have to figure out a way. I think this is why I think inter, you know, interaction with the Reverend Perry is very important for the Yale School of Medicine, right? Because we have to go out of our comfort zones in some way. We have to entertain different ways of engaging the community so we can get that 15, 20% representation in our clinical trials. It's absolutely of paramount importance for us to do this. But I think at the end, that responsibility does have the does have to fall on the investigators, unfortunately, as I see it. I know there's a lot of things that we have to juggle. But I think if we're really in it, right, and we want to help our patients, at the end, the science that we're doing has to involve the very people that it impacts. Right. Mm. Right. Mm. right. Mm. All right. So uh, enough about the, you know, <laughs> the, the passionate statement. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, by, by the, the research that we're involved in here right now, translational work. You know, one of them, actually, I'm very passionate about is surgery in patients with metastatic prostate cancer. So conventional, when patients have a, a, a prostate cancer that's metastasized to the bone, to the lymph nodes, to the liver, the standard of care right now is just systemic therapy, which is a hormonal therapy and chemotherapy. Um, now there are the growing body of evidence that suggests that if we are actually take care of the local prostate cancer, that the outcomes of these patients are going to be different. We think we can make their life better. And I think in trying to equate that, to tell that to the, my patients, I use the movie analogy of the Independence Day, right? I mean, that's a Will Smith movie. I love that movie. That's the type of movie I love, right? And in that movie, right, you have this armada of aliens invading Earth. And at the end, right, I mean, and none of the missiles are able to get at this UFOs until Will Smith figures out that there is a mothership 
behind the moon in which they, he can go after and nukes it. And once the mothership goes down, then now the UFOs on Earth are all vulnerable to these missiles that the F-16s or the fighter pilots are not delivering to them. So likewise, this is what I feel about metastatic prostate cancer. That I believe there is a mothership there. And if you take care of the mothership, then mm. the hormonal therapy, that chemotherapy is going to be more effective against the bone mets and the liver mets and the lymph node mets. That's a central premise of this, tr of this trial. So if this is a randomized trial, again, where we're you know, randomizing patients one-to-one -one between patients who had surgery versus no surgery, 190 patients are initial part. And then after that, uh, you know, we're going to involve another uh, up to 670 patients if the study appears to be progressing on, on uh, pace, as well as the outcome appears to be promising. Um, I think this is very exciting. We're not the only ones testing this concept. Uh, there's another large study consortium that's doing this. So again, I'm not going on the limb in terms of this. I, there's a lot of excitement with this new concept of, again, addressing the local disease and metastatic prostate cancer, which then allows allows patients to, uh, to have a better outcomes. Um, and then I think there's you know, a couple other studies I can highlight for, I think, but in terms of um, timeline, probably, um, because again, I can talk about clinical trials go on and on and on. <laughs> right? I'll leave it at that. I think with just a taste of the clinical trial that's happening uh, within the walls of Yale School of Medicine here. We have about five more minutes, gentlemen. So as the spirit moves you and last thoughts or comments, please let's share. And I wanted to jump in Dr. Kim and really, again, just appreciate your, your you, we can call it fire or passion, but it's, it's a commitment. It's 24-7, 365 commitment to what you are, what you believe in and you're, you're manifesting your beliefs. But uh, I've heard this, you, you've talked about mission mapping in some of your previous uh, public announcements and tell us what that means. And I wanna throw in also about uh, the, the need for diversity in the field of healthcare. Uh, so mission mapping, diversity in, in the field of healthcare. Why are those things important to you? Right. So again, we don't know if this is going to work, but this is a new concept that we are exploring in our department. You know, basically what it is, is, is that, uh, you know, we're all, um, you know, our, you know, respond to our experiences, uh, how we grew up, what we've seen, um, you know, the environment that we grew up in, right? So this implicit bias is something that's very difficult I would say like, impossible to get over, right? So that then also gets reflected in hiring the people or hiring our faculty members and hiring those staff members and the people that we work with around us. So at the end, we you know, surround ourselves with the same type of people because that's what we're used to. What this mission mapping we're trying to do is, is that in trying to uh, address that, mitigate that issue, that we try to make this whole screening process for faculty members blind as possible, as blind as possible. So basically what we're asking them is, is okay, just, you know, rather than the accomplishment of this curriculum vitae that you're telling us, because, you know, that curriculum vitae would tell us, you know, the individuals from, let's say, you know, top elite institutions, or it could be from a third rate institution as we see it in our world. Um, and then that would just form this biases. So we remove all those issues and just say, okay, simply one page, tell us what you wanna do for the next year, next three years, next five years. How is it going to help the impact of the department? So that is a completely a blinder process. And we're going to make a judgment or decision upon whether we're going to interview that faculty, that particular candidate based upon that first. And now mm -hmm. after that, we're going to have to do a personal interview or whatnot. So we can't be completely blinded in terms of the entire process. But this is just an attempt by our department to address this very issue 
uh, because again, we're all um, you know, uh, subject to the, the biases that we all have. And again, this is gonna be very, very important as you move forward because the patients that we wanna draw in here, right? I mean, also the trainees that wanna draw in here, you know, that's gonna all gonna reflect upon, you know, how diverse, you know, how, you know, the, who's, who's representing mm -hmm. our department. I think to have a, a, a diverse, you know, uh, faculty members and staff members from varying backgrounds is just gonna do better because you were able to see things from different angles, right? Mm -hmm. On different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And then I think with that then, right? I mean, we're able to just build a better trial, better care for the patients, better training program. So that is our whole hope in rolling this uh, mission mapping out. Um, and again, that would, this is not the first, this is not the last time we're going to continue to explore different mm -hmm. options as a command for us to continue to tackle this difficult and thorny issue, but we have to address, which is in a diversity issue within our, our community and within our school and within our department. Gentlemen, we have two, we have two more minutes. So Reverend Perry, right. I want to give you, give you yeah. a chance to comment, then so, Reverend Kim for the last words. With the metastatic prostate um, program or study that you're doing, the recruitment is basically through other doctors yeah. who who recommend patients who, who come and say this is where you know they have this metastasized cancer. And so in that study, is do you have a lot of African Americans? Do you have any or is it a small amount? So right now it's about five percent. This study this but this study is an international study. So it involves about 10 institutions within the United States, but we have another 20, 15 institutions that's international. So in the grand scheme of things, our number's not that bad because we have uh, you know, Chinese institutions, we have a Korean institutions, Japanese institutions, all as part of this clinical trial consortium. That said, right, and what we'd like to, well, we'd like to continue to uh, reach out to the community, African-Americans, um, to educate them about this clinical trials. So, uh, mm -hmm. But we've been getting reasonable number of patients coming in um, because they know, you know so, so I think to that end, I'm not so concerned about uh, uh, the, the accruals from the African-American community to this trial. Nevertheless, right, I mean, there's a lot of things that uh, we can learn from this trial also. Um, to and to that end, again, um, and having I think a more robust um, uh, participation from the African Committee, I would love to uh, to work with you on that um, to get this information um, disseminated to the community. Reverend Kim, we have the uh, time, Reverend Kim. No, no, just to me finish. So, so we, have, we, have, we have 30, 30 more seconds. Oh my God! So, <laughs> I guess we're going to run out of time. Got to do I was going to ask you about diversity on your own staff in terms of how many African American or minority people were. Where it's secondly, and then the other thing about the study is so if you're not in this study, then are your chances less for survival with the with the with the met the, with the you know the methods that are standard right now? Uh, do you think that they are you know your your best bet would be be in this, or is there no real difference right now because the study hasn't been completed? And Harry's going to play the music. Go, go, Reverend Kim. We got to do a part two. Reverend Dr. Kim, please, but Harry will play the music. Sure. Yes, no, no, no. Oh, I think we're done. <laughs> we got to do another show, guys. Okay. We got to do a part two. All right. Yeah. We got to yeah. do a part two. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'm going to roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition. This new addition. Filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stress this is what you're going to count on. This is Tuesday, Reverend Dr. H.L.P. 103.5 FM. 
I'm never gonna like give up, give nope. up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my road. Let's camera action, I'm ready to go. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Yeah, this is my road. Let's camera action, I'm ready to go. Now you gon' face the dawn you waiting for I said from night to dawn I write my wrongs alone In competition with warnings Ice galore Now I'm running toward them My lights are finished Being a quitter But little, little by little They joking, telling some riddles Now I'm